Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, can I encourage you, please, to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to encourage those who are in our Family Life Center to join us as well. Turn in your Bibles or on your devices. And those who are tuning in online and watching either from home or somewhere far away, we welcome you into this ongoing study and encourage you to to turn in the Holy Word along with us. Today is part number 23 in the book of Exodus. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? And it may be that if you are just joining us, you think, oh, wow, gosh, part number 23, I've missed the first 22. Uh, why, why even engage not to fear? Every Sunday, we try to catch you up a little bit. So heads up, here it comes, your 45-second catch-up on the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus has always been and is currently now and will always be about being set free. In fact, the first 15 chapters of this book that we've been studying is dedicated to liberation, to being set free from some Pharaoh, some Egypt, some enslavement that keeps you and I bound and from living out our fullest expression of who God has intended us to be. For them, it was Pharaoh and Egypt. For you, it may be a different named, a different Pharaoh or an Egypt of a different name. It may go by a variety of, of, of names and faces. But being set free by God is only the beginning. We recognize that after we are set free, it requires saying yes to a rhythm of life that keeps us free. That's why chapters 16, 17, and 18 make up the next large section of the book of Exodus, a section in which we study some wilderness wandering. So after being set free, there's a period of time in which the people began to ask questions. Do we really want this level of freedom? I mean, is it really what we had always thought it may be? Because now that we have been liberated and set free and are now following this one who has captivated us and and drawn us out of Egypt, it now means that we have to say yes to a, a different way of life, a different way to exist in the world. And we're not sure altogether that we want to do that or not. So there's some wandering that takes place every time we're set free from something. But then we moved into the third major section of the book of Exodus, which is sections, uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. Chapters 19 through 24. A period in the book of Exodus where God establishes a covenant with God's people. Where God comes to them and says, "This I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And this is how this thing is going to work out. This is how I'll behave. And here's some things that I need from you in order to behave as my people known in the world. And that's where we entered into chapter 20 and we saw the Ten Commandments and we slowed down over these last several weeks. For ten weeks we've been studying each commandment. 
about what it means to look like, believe like, behave like, love like people who follow the liberating God. And today, we continue in the book of, uh, of Covenant. So last week, I gave you a little preview. I said, hey, we're going to move on to the next major section. I need you to read chapters 25 through 30 and 35 through 40, and we're going to hit that next week. And that's, that's what I said last week. But as I was digging through, I realized I got more to say, y'all. There's more to say. There's more to dig. And so I want us to do this today. Before we leave what's known as the covenant shaping period of, of, of Exodus, I want us to take the plane back up to kind of a 30,000-foot view to say some things about that whole body of literature right there, chapters 19 through 24, that I, I believe may, may shape something in us today. We begin by reading Moses delivers the word of the Ten Commandments and now retreats back up the hill, up the mountain into the, the cloud. And this is where we pick up. Chapter 20, verse 18. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you, you, speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us or we'll die we'll we'll die Moses said to the people do not be afraid for God uh, has come only to test you and to put the fear of him in you so that you do not sin and then then, then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was This week, my heart has been arrested by, arrested by a phrase that we just read, that Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And it occurs to me that I meet so many people, just, just as you do, whose lives can be characterized as moving from one season to the next in which we enter through transition or loss or heartache or despair, and those seasons can be described as seasons of entering a thick darkness. And you move cities, you change schools, you lose your job, the relationship falls apart, the disease gets diagnosed, and whatever it is that seems to be the thing that looks like a cloud that fogs your perspective, it can feel at times like you are entering seasons of thick darkness. And the assumption that we often make tragically when we enter into seasons of thick darkness is that that's a place where God is not. We assume because it's filled with angst and a heartbreak and, and it's filled with a sense of isolation and loneliness and maybe even a little fear we assume that it's kind of a an atheistic cloud that we're entering thick darkness but the word of god suggests something different moses entered into the thick darkness comma where god was What if, 
When you enter seasons of thick darkness, you are closer to the divine than you ever imagined. This morning, I I want us to consider that possibility because we're about to look at what's called the Book of Covenant, chapters 20 through 24, the Book of Covenant. And in that Book of Covenant, there is a, a, a description of what it looks like to live in covenant with God, which is just kind of a churchy way of saying in relationship with God. And in the book of covenant, we we find instructions about how to navigate life in relationship with the one who knows us best and loves us most, whether the, the weather is bright and sunny or we are entering seasons of thick darkness. And, and I, I suggest that there may be some truths that arise from the pages of the book of covenant that that speak to us today, that may strengthen us and empower us to enter into whatever cloud of thick darkness with confidence. So today I want to talk to you for just a little while about peculiar people shaking fists and scar tissue. Peculiar people Shaking fists and scar tissue. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts simply be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you will now bless the words that proceed from my mouth as we all attempt to interpret your sacred word so that in hearing we may never be the same. Amen. Peculiar people. Do you know that when we are courageous enough to have the audacity to call ourselves people of God, It comes with a kind of hook, you know. We are meant to be a peculiar people. We are meant to be the kind of people because of the ethics of following God, because of the ethical character of the one who has captivated our soul, because of that we are to be a people who are supposed to swim upstream against the current in this world. We are supposed to be among those who sometimes stand out like a a sore thumb, a peculiar people. This is what God intended. Do you remember back when we were in chapter 19, like a thousand years ago? (laughs) We hear these words when we hear about God hoping to create a peoplehood out of these scattered refugees. Listen to what he said. You have seen, this is what he said to the people after they've been liberated, you have seen what I did to those knucklehead Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You saw that. Now, therefore, if you obey, if, all caps, if, underscore, bold face, italicized, I period, F period, if you Obey my voice, which the word obey in Hebrew is shema, which means to hear. If you are really hearing what I have to say, if you can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, 
and you keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So God establishes the procedure of becoming a people by saying you are to be different. A, a priestly kingdom, a, a holy nation. There's something about you that has got to stand out because if you are going to be called by my name, then the rhythm of your life has to look something like the rhythm of my own character lived out among you. So he gives instructions about how to pull that off. He gives two sets of laws, really one set of laws, but two kinds of laws. The first kind is the Ten Commandments, and the second is the Book of Covenant. The Ten Commandments is a kind of law that, well, we refer to it as apodictic law. You don't need to remember that word. It's not that important. It simply means this. The Ten Commandments, apodictic law, means this. It's a, it's a kind of law that is an edict. It's, I said it, and, and, and so do it. It's like when Laura talks to me at home, and I'm like, yeah. Yes, ma'am. It's, it's apodictic law is non-negotiable. Apodictic law is a law that says you shall do this and you shall not do that. That's the Ten Commandments. And we just spent ten weeks studying apodictic law. But then at the end of chapter 20, there begins what we call the Book of Covenant. The Book of Covenant is not apodictic law. It's casuistic law. Casuistic law is, in other words, uh, case law. It's like a, think of the Constitution and, and the amendments to the Constitution. It's like an expanding of the Ten Commandments. For example, case law. The law says you shall not murder. But what if, what if like you, you try to murder, but you're not really good at it? And like they live, but now they're crippled? Who pays the hospital bills? See, the Book of Covenant literally covers that kind of stuff. Let's say you dig a hole in your, in your field, in your property, but you didn't cover it up or put a sign or put tape around it that said, hey, here's a hole, and your neighbor's ox falls into it and dies. Well, then who, who owns the ox? It's dead now. Who removes the carcass and who pays for what? Well, it's, that's in the book of covenants. It's that kind of law. It's case law. Law that describes how to just live in this world without being a jerk. It's just about normal civic law that you got to do. You can't look at your phone when you're in the car now. Because if you, if you do, you rightfully so get shamed by the person next to you because you don't do that. There's just some stuff you don't do. Case law, casuistic law. And in the Book of Covenant, there are some great examples. Can I give you just one or two? Here's one that comes to us in chapter 21. When individuals quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or fist so that the injured party, though not dead, is confined to bed but recovers and walks around outside with the help of a staff, then the assailant shall be free of liability except to pay for the loss of time and to arrange for full recovery and the Uber costs to get to PT and... Another example here, this is, this is one of my favorite here. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, and by the way, that doesn't happen a lot in Atlanta. Just, it doesn't. But in case it does, 
We've got some instructions about how to handle it. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, if it's got a track record and, and the owner has been warned about it but has not restrained it and it kills a man or a woman, oh, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. That's enough. That's, that's a good example. But that's, that's, as far, that's the kind of stuff that's in the book of covenant. Casuistic law. Now watch. Just basic laws about how to be a human in the world. Laws that everybody has to follow. But do you know that in the ancient Near East, there are other kinds of casuistic laws all around Israel. In fact, there is no case law at all in the Book of Covenant that you can't find in other ancient Near Eastern manuscripts, like the Code of Hammurabi, like our students will study the Hammurabi's Code, the Law Code, Ancient Code. All of the case law found in the Hebrew Bible can be found in the Code of Hammurabi. But there is one difference that makes all the difference. Nowhere else. In all of ancient literature, nowhere else, I mean, I'm talking unprecedented in all of the ancient Near East, nowhere is there ever a place where casuistic and apodictic law merge and are placed side by side as it is in the word of God. So on the one hand, what does it matter? What does it mean that we're saying this? On the one hand, God is saying, you got to live in the world and just not be jerks. That's one thing. Just live in the world. Here's a, here's a code of laws that you just got to do because that's what it means to be human. But interspersed within those laws, interspersed within the case laws of what to do about a, about a mad ox and so forth, God punctuates the book of covenant with apodictic law. So right in the middle of this run, this rant of uh, these are laws that you just got to follow because that's just what it means to be human interspersed in there are laws that are apodictic, that are theological laws, God's laws that, that are unique, that set them apart from their neighbors living around them. Can I give you one or two examples? In the middle of the book of covenant, we hear examples like this. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall be widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to people, to my people... If, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate moving on to the next chapter we hear another example you shall not oppress a resident alien you know the heart of an alien for you were aliens in the land of egypt for six years you shall sow your land and gather its its yield 
but the seventh year you shall let it rest in La Fallow so that the poor among you may eat, the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. What in the world is God doing? Insert a shoehorn and cramming into the midst of normal, reasonable laws, laws like that. It's as if God is trying to remind them and us, don't forget where you came from. Don't you forget, when I came to you, I heard you crying out because you were widows and orphans. You were forgotten in the land of Egypt, and I swooped in like an eagle with wings and carried you out. So if you are going to exist as covenant people with me, if you're going to be known by my name, you must be peculiar. You must love as I loved. You must live as I have lived with you. You must be a rescuing people. You must never neglect the vulnerable among you. Now, why does that matter today? Because the fact is, you and I are also called to live by the law of the land. But can I just tell you, there is no law in the land that says you have to love anybody. There's no law of the land that says you have to be compassionate or that you have to pay attention to the vulnerable. There's no law in the land that says you have to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, visit the sick, visit the outcast, welcome the outcast. There's no law, not in the land, but there is in the law of God. And our Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, he said, oh, by the way, one more thing. A new commandment I give you, a new law, a new edict, a new apodictic command. Here it is. You must love one another. You must love. See, it's the law of love that sets you and me apart from everyone else. We are required to love, and that makes us a peculiar people. In fact, those very words come from 1 Peter. This is what 1 Peter has to say about it. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And I just want to say to you as we're talking about a life that sometimes is characterized by clouds of thick darkness, can I just tell you, Sometimes it's our particular peculiarity as lovers of God that bring the cloud on. Because if you say yes to the law of love, it will cost you something eventually. If you say yes to the law of love, it will mean that you have to renegotiate your priorities. It may even mean that you re redefine what it means to succeed or to win or to achieve. If you say yes to the law of love and become a, a peculiar people, means that sometimes you suffer the rejection of being peculiar people but it's okay because in the cloud of thick darkness that's where God is that moves us from the first movement of this sermon what do we do when we enter thickness darkness thick darkness dark thickness what do we do how do we live first we remember that we are peculiar people and this shouldn't surprise us the second is this shaking fists the second movement of the sermon that i want you to consider this morning as we move through this text is shaking fists so yeah the book of covenant does say some things about how we have to order our lives and and the covenant is very clear later in the hebrew bible 
that when the people break the covenant, there are some consequences. But the question is, what happens if, um, if it appears like God has broken covenant? What then? I want you to know that the book of covenant that we're studying, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, the book of covenant become the ground, the, the foundation, the, the concrete footers of the relationship people have with God throughout history. So that later, when everything falls apart, when everything falls apart and the people suffer, it's the book of covenant that serves as a foundation for about 50 psalms of lament to be written. 50 psalms of lamentation in your Bible in which the people point to the, the covenant that God established with the people and they say out loud, you have broken covenant with us. About 50 psalms in the book of Psalms, the Psalter, in which they lament and they anguish and they're angry and they call out and they shake their fists and they accuse God of having broken his promise with God's people. The best example, you know it. It was heard on the words on the lips of our own Savior as he hung dying upon the cross. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and, and, and I find no rest. Do you know what it's like to, to pray that prayer of dereliction, the cry of dereliction, we call it. To know what it's like to call out and say, you know, I thought we had this thing going. And, and we were going to be your people and you were going to be our God. But the people say, you, you have abandoned us. In fact, the word that's used there in Hebrew is atzav. Atzav is a Hebrew word that means divorce. In Psalm 22, the people accuse God of walking out on them. You have divorced us. Why? Now, why would I bring that up? 50 Psalms of Lament. And in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, there's even a whole book called the Book of Lamentations in which they rage, they shake their fist, they call God out. Why would I bring that up? Because I want you to know if you are entering the cloud of thick darkness, if you're feeling the cry of dereliction in your own soul, you've been praying and nothing's happening. You've been crying and there's been no one, it seems, to hear. You need to know this. You can rant at God. God can handle it. You can rant at God. God can take it. God's big enough and bad enough to listen to your rant. And part of what it means to be in covenant with God is that we have been invited to be in relationship. And being in relationship means calling out, even if what you have to call out sounds as if it's out of bounds. Because that's what love is. Do you know that one of the best books in the Old Testament is the book of Job. The book of Job, one day I want to do a series, a preaching series on the book of Job. Just, just part by part. It'll take about nine years. I just want to warn you that it's... And so let me give you about four minutes of the book of Job right here. Do you know what the story of the book of Job is all about? It's about a cloud of thick darkness, believe you me. It's about a man who is upright and perfect in all his ways. That's what the Bible says about him. Verse 1 says this. Uh, there was a man once in the land of Uz whose name was Job. 
That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And it goes on to describe just how spectacular this guy was. He was like the model human being. And then all hell breaks loose. And he loses everything. He loses his children. They're attacked. His, his in-laws, they, they, they die. His, his cattle, his, his oxen, his, his livestock of, of every variety, his, his business, he loses everything he has. And at first, it's like, okay, well, this thing happens. It kind of happens. And this is where you hear, oh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he loses his health and he's about to die. He's got boils all over him and he's suffering and he's sitting there on this, uh, this ash heap, scraping his boils with shards of pottery, grieving, mourning, and his friends show up. His friends show up. Talk about a cloud of thick darkness. And his friends show up to be friends to him. And they show up and they're quiet. They just sit there. The power of being present with one another. And for about two chapters in that 42-chapter book, for about two chapters, Job is quiet. He just takes it. These things happening. These things happen. And the friends even applaud him. He's like, oh, man, Job, what a man of faith. Look at him. He's suffering. He's lost everything, and yet he hasn't opened his mouth. He's not said a word. He's not let out a peep about God. Look how faithful. And then chapter 3 opens up, and he opens his mouth like a lion, and he roars against God, and he shakes his fist to the heavens, and he says, this is not right. I was living a life of righteousness. I was doing everything that I was attempted to do, or attempting to do to please you, and you have been unjust. And he shakes his finger at God, and he waves his fist before God, and he accuses God, calls him everything in the book, and says, you need to come down here and fight me like a man. He sends a subpoena to heaven. Bring yourself to court, and you'll see that the scales of justice will tip in my favor because I have not done anything to deserve this level of suffering. And he charges God with crimes against humanity. For 35 chapters, he rants and he rails and he shakes his fist. And his friends, by the way, are freaking out. His friends are like, dude, you can't talk that way to God. And, he, and he's like, dudes, watch me. And he's doing it. And at the end of 35 chapters of ranting, God speaks out of a whirlwind and takes him on a, a tour of all the cosmos. And he, he says, were you there with me when I hung the Pleiades in the sky? Were you there with me when I carved out the oceans and scooped up the mountains? Were you there when, with me when I, when I established the storehouses of snow? Were you there with me when I created you? And after about a two-chapter rant from God, Job. I am small. He says, I'm, I'm small. But then he says something that is so powerful that I want you to hear this. He, he said, I'm small, but, but, but here's what I've learned. He said, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you therefore i despise myself and i repent in dust and ashes and usually when we hear that part of the story we think ah 
Okay, whew, finally, he regrets saying anything. He repented in dust and ashes, so he's going to take everything back that he just said to God. But that's not what that means. I look closer and you realize that repent in Hebrew means to change your mind. I changed my mind. Dust and ashes in Hebrew is a Hebrew idiom for humanity. I changed my mind about what I used to think about humanity. Because now I used to hear about you, but now I see you. And I would not have seen you the way I see you had we not had this thing going on for about 35, 36, 37 chapters. And there is this awakening because he ranted and then God speaks again. God turns to Job's friends, the ones who were protecting God the whole time. You can't talk to God. You better be respect. He turns to the friends and says to the friends, friends of Job, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What's the point? You can rant at God, God can take it. Often we think that if we have doubt in our heart or a mind, if we think that we have anger in our heart against God, then, then somehow that's a lack of faith. But I'm telling you that that is an act of faith. Because when you express your doubt before God and, and your anger at the way things are, what you're really saying is, God, I had a pretty high opinion about who you are. And, 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 but based on my limited perspective, it looks like you're not living up to the high degree of what I thought about you. you it, so I'm going to say this, and you need to explain to me or show me something so that it widens my perspective. But in the meantime, I'm not going to shut up because love doesn't shut up. We can shake our fists because God can take it. Not only when we enter into the cloud of thick darkness do we need to remember that we are peculiar people and sometimes our particular peculiarities bring on the thick darkness. And not only do we need to remember in the darkest part of that thick darkness we can shake our fists because God wants to hear from us and redeem us and shape us in the midst of it. But it moves us to the last part of the sermon. The last movement of the sermon is this. Scar tissue. Scar tissue. Back when I used to uh, hang out with Bill Self a little bit, I'd say, Bill, we need to go to lunch again because I, I want to pick your brain. You got some things I need to know. I, I need, and when I pick your brain, Bill, I, I, I feel like I leave smarter, I leave better because you've been doing what I'm doing for longer than I've been breathing, right? And you know what he said? Yeah, it's mainly just scar tissue. He said, but yeah, I said, you got this wisdom, you got this experience, I need to learn from you. He said, it's just mainly just scar tissue. What did he mean by that? Wisdom only comes through woundedness, failure, disappointment, heartache. Because in those places, scar tissue develops and you're able to point to a place where you remember where it wasn't so well. And in the midst of pointing to your scar, you remember something and you're transformed now because of the thing you remember happening then. And that doesn't happen without scar tissue. And the people of Israel had some scar tissue. Don't forget that this book of covenant that we're studying, it happens during the Exodus. But don't forget, we said this a long time ago, it never comes into written form until hundreds of years later. In fact, after the people settled the promised land, 
And they had a kingdom, and, a, and, and King David unified the country, and then there was a civil war, and they divided north and south, and the Assyrians attacked the north, and the Babylonians attacked the south, and the temple was destroyed after all of that. And now they're in exile, brokenhearted by the rivers of Babylon. It's then that the rabbis begin to whisper old stories about a covenant that was made a long time ago. And they began to look at the scar they have. And remember, yeah, we, this was painful and, it was, and we're still in the midst of that pain, but talk to me about covenant. And that's when the prophets step forward like Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, I've got some good news, but it has to come with a little bit of pain of touching you on your scarred places. This is what Jeremiah had to offer. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with them and the ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's going to be different. A covenant that they broke, by the way. A covenant they broke. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. And don't, don't let that be lost on us. Remember, through all of the pain, it was the people who said, you have forsaken us. You have atzav, divorced us. And here later, God speaks through Jeremiah. Uh, it was a covenant they broke. They walked out on me. And then continues. But this is the new covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another saying, uh, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. What does all that mean? I mean, sometimes it's only through our scarring, only the scars that we get when we walk into the cloud of thick darkness that we're able to point and say, it was there that I got to know God better than I could have known God had I not entered the cloud. For I will write now a new covenant, not one chiseled in stone, but one written upon the heart of your personal experience. You've got a story, and that story has scar tissue, but that's the whole point. In the scar tissue that is upon your heart, God is writing God's own covenant of love. I will not forsake them. I will forgive them and make them new. And maybe today, somebody has gathered on this campus to be made new. And maybe you need some guidance on how to pray that way, pray toward your newness. And maybe it sounds something like this. God, I recognize that you're calling me to be a peculiar people. You're calling me to be set out. But I recognize and I confess that there have been times when I have not lived according to your character. But I've lived by the law of the land and not your holy law of love. And I, I confess that. But Lord, i got to admit to you, there have been times when I haven't understood you. I don't understand you. And it's made me angry, and i got to get that off my chest. I can't just hold that in any longer. But I suspect if I say that to you, you might be able to broaden the perspective so that I might see what I haven't seen. Make me new. If that's what you need to pray today, then whisper that in your heart as we close now in a word of prayer. God, we do pause now. Maybe the better way to say it, God, is that we yield now. We, we stop and we yield. We, we lay down 
our guard, we, we relinquish our ego, our pride, and we welcome you to show us even in the scar tissue where we've been wounded and where we are angry and where we perhaps feel a little bit lost in this cloud of thick darkness, we, we pray that you would show us what it looks like to simply hold your hand until the clouds disappear. I pray, I pray right now for these people. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray that if there is a single person on campus today struggling with this kind of heartache and desperation, I pray that you would draw them in and heal their hearts and show them the power of what it means to live in covenant with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.